0: Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And today we have a special guest, um, Ocean Paley Ellison, who is the co-founder and co-guiding teacher of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, an educational nonprofit organization delivering contemplative approaches to care through education, direct service, and meditation practice. He served as the co-director of contemplative care services for the Department of Integrative Medicine and is the um, ACPC certified, certified educator for the pain and um, palliative care department at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center, he he's also served as the uh, medical ethics committee on the medical ethics committee. He currently is the faculty of the University of uh, Arizona Medical School Center for Integrative Medicines, um, Integrative Medical Fe- Medicine Fellowship, and is visiting a professor at the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics of the University of Texas uh, Health Science Center of Houston Medical School. He's also the co-editor of Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings on the Palliative End-of-Life Care. Uh, welcome, uh, Koshin. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, that should be good. Um, so yeah, yeah, so welcome, welcome. So, uh, so I read your book, uh, your new book, uh, Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. I read uh, in preparation for this interview. Um, in many ways, we were just discussing a little before. In many ways, the the most challenging aspect of it I found was, uh, you know, how you deal with or wrestle with, um, you know, in addition to kind of laying out the Buddhist path and and giving commentary on various precepts, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, but, but the way you lay out uh, a vision for like um, dealing with and, and confronting people who are toxic and people who are difficult, uh, especially what we call trolls and, uh, and uh, uh, overall c- combative people. And, uh, um, you know, you can start a little bit at the beginning about, you know, waking up of the zombie land that we, we come into where we're kind of feeling like we're all right and, and they're all wrong, you know? And you tell us a little bit about kind of how Buddhism uh, or Buddhist teachings kind of give us a, a way out of that kind of zombie-like state, you know? Thank you.
1: Yeah. So it's critical to really examine how we're functioning. And I think that we don't have to practice, you know, one of the teachers from my Zen tradition, Dogen, talks about that the demonic is available 24 hours a day, that we don't have to practice that. And what we need to practice is how to wake up and how to engage. And so there are many difficult people in our lives. And yeah, in the book I talk about in particular several um, difficult Relationships that I've had, and one of them was with a troll and someone who was trolling me for about 18 months and sending really uh, vicious and hateful messages to me and people I care about um, for a, quite a long time. And to me, it was one of those places where I thought that I had arrived at a certain point in my practice where I was a bit comfortable. And without even realizing I was comfortable, but I realized that with this person that I needed to really check myself for how I was actually functioning with compassion. And I found my ability to hate um, rise up really quickly. And it was really quite a wake-up call. And to really see how you know, the early Buddhist teachings talk about that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is the world healed. And I thought that I always believed that. And sometimes those things are easy to believe, but and yet really challenging to practice. And so my troll, without probably expecting to, became a great teacher for me, and to really see how you can actually find a place of compassion for a perpetrator. And And for me, there's a really important distinction between, often we think that compassion is just being nice and being loving and, and nice and loving look a certain way. And so what I learned really firsthand, with this person was the difference between caring for someone and really understanding that they're suffering and holding them to justice. Yeah, And that there's a huge difference. And so not hating this person, but not approving or agreeing with their actions, which were actually illegal and criminal. And so really learning how to feel and care about this person who clearly was suffering an enormous amount. I mean, at all hours of the night and in the day, they would be sending these horrible messages and at the same time reporting this person to the police and pursuing um, their arrest, mm. and which ultimately did happen. And actually, there was a moment where In one of the court hearings, I was able to go and, with the district attorney's office, support just to be there and because it was really the city of New York against this person, so it was no longer myself. And there was just something really powerful about sitting in the courtroom and seeing this person and just feeling both really glad that they were being held accountable for their crime, which actually they were crimes, and at the same time feeling a tenderness for them because clearly they were very um, challenged, you could say.
0: Yeah. And I
1: feel like those two things together continue to inform me to this day. And actually for the last uh 10 months i've had this practice of signing on and i become a member of a hate site and really looking at my responses so every morning i sit and have meditation practice each morning and then i log on to this hate site the white supremacist site and just to see like how i am And what I'm still seeing, you know, 10 months into this practice is that almost still immediately, my own hatred comes up, my own intolerance comes up Mm. almost immediately. And so learning how to soften, and it doesn't mean that, again, you have to agree with someone, but to learn how to care that these are people. Mm. They're human beings. And how quickly I can actually make them not human beings, mm. and that they become monstrous. And while we have some, all of us have monstrous thoughts and sometimes monstrous actions. It's different than who we are as people.
0: Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the phrase that the saying or the axiom that uh, the more you fight with monsters, the more you become a monster. The danger of becoming a monster mm-hmm. becomes the the danger that. You know in in the idea of engaging with monsters or fighting with monsters that we might become like them you know that's definitely something that uh it seems to be seems to be resonating with what you're saying that you know even though we think that we're outwardly you know the it's the inward um journey that we're taking that's primal importance that outwardly we might be enforcing boundaries we might be doing the things that we need to be doing uh and that may may remain constant throughout whatever our journey may be but um at the same time, inwardly, we want to be making sure that we're checking with ourselves, our inward, inward atmosphere, and checking in with ourselves, that we're not succumbing to negative emotions or negative feelings or negative thoughts, that we're kind of keeping that in check. Yeah.
1: So important. And just to like really be clear in ourselves like where we are. Yeah. And so that it's so easy to lash out. Yeah. like We just, again, we don't have to practice that. We don't have to practice lashing out but to learn how to really have our own integrity and not lose ourselves in the midst of things. There's a great story that is a couple thousand years old where this demon comes and he feeds on people's hatred. And so he you know, doesn't have trouble finding lots of food And so he keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. bigger. We know when everyone's having an argument or people are hating other people because they're different. And he just loves it, you know, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger and then eventually gets so big that he's like, well, maybe I'll go up to the place of the gods. And so he goes to the, you know, the palace of the gods of that time and finds the king of the gods throne and Nobody's there, and so he you know walks in and he's like, "I'm gonna stir up some more trouble," and sits in the throne of the king of the gods and he's like, "Let's see what happens uh, more hatred, and I'll get even bigger and the other gods come in and they say, "What are you doing here?" And you know they get really angry with him, yeah, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh. as they're like hating him, and then the door opens the king of the gods comes and everyone's like, whoa, it's going to be a big showdown now. And the king of the gods just comes in and goes up to the demon and sits next to him and is like, so how are you doing? And they end up having this like really sweet conversation about how he's doing and what's up with him and how is it for him to be a demon? And how (laughs) is it, you know, and as they're talking, the demon gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, <laughs> and then actually, you know, in the story, goes that he goes like poof into a like little bit of smoke, and he's yeah. gone. And you know, it's just about this beautiful story, and I love that this is you know, an ancient story yeah. that it's the same lesson, you know, like that if we meet hatred with hatred, it's really almost ensures that it will continue and get more and so how do we you know really excite ourselves into doing something different Mm. you know and to support one another to do things differently
0: yeah thank you thank you for that and and a more recent story uh that i know that has been coming up at least on my feed uh in regards to kind of reinterpretations of it is Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. Are you familiar with that one? Yes. Yeah. Course. And then, of course, and then uh, a lot of people have been talking about that, saying that you know it's it's kind of teaching the wrong lesson. So I want you to be able to talk a little bit about how what your interpretation of the Giving Tree is, and to, for the listeners, basically it's a tree that um, you know a young boy a young boy comes up to it and wants to first giving apples, and the tree is like, oh please take these apples. And then he builds a swing and then he slowly starts to, and then the, it escalates to the point where uh, you know, he's, he's chopping down branches and then he's chopping down the whole tree to build a, a, a house, I think. And then ultimately as an old man, he sits on the stump, he's carving his uh, lover's name on it. And then ultimately as an old man, he sits on the stump of the trees, like always giving, always very much in the modality of like, please, please take for me, take for me, you know, kind of thing. And many people have, you know, said, "Oh, this is the wrong lesson." And I'm curious about what your take on this is, and and how you understand, you know, when we talk about boundaries and we talk about limits, and we talk about you know these kinds of things. In in my take, I'll tell you my take after. I guess I'll let you go first, and and tell me a little bit of what you what you take from that story and uh, and, how, and how you interpret it. Yeah,
1: yeah. I remember reading that story and hearing that story when I was a kid, and I actually found the story both sad and beautiful yeah and for me it was also a story of aging yeah and you know that the tree and the man in some ways are symbiotic mm. and one way you could look at the story of course is like yeah is the tree's giving too much and the tree shouldn't do that and Yeah. It's out of balance, but at the same time, they actually are in balance. The tree is at its end of its life, and so is the man. And so it's this, to me, this beautiful relationship also of how we can give throughout our lives until we're not here. Yeah. And so I think that in some ways, it's also important to say that many people who see themselves as caring people give and give and give and give and become too depleted Mm. and in our tradition and at our center what we teach people mostly is about that true generosity is giving and receiving equally yeah and how do we learn how to do that because the quality that you're giving is only the, the quality that you're also receiving. Yeah. So, one of the things that I've actually thought about with that story is that the tree was also receiving yeah, the I was man's just thinking, yeah. friendship. Yeah. And they were very good friends. Yeah. And so the tree felt inspired to give everything. And until the man was close to death. And so it's just. But to me it's just incredibly important to really look at how we're nourishing ourselves and the quality in which we're nourishing ourselves is the quality we'll nourish others
2: mm.
0: yeah, I think it's definitely true. I definitely I was keying in on that and keying the idea that the uh the friendship between the tree and the and the and the man and the boy and how they uh as you're saying you know engage in the kind of uh relationship or it, it was a little bit of a back and forth because it, as the boy was swinging on the tree and taking the apples the apples were going to fall anyway so he's eating the apples and he feels this sense of joy in helping mm-hmm. the the boy and, and those kind of things so we shouldn't uh, drive the wrong lessons that we should uh uh deplete ourselves but we should uh, focus in on that relationship mm-hmm. and how the, the the give and take and such yeah mm-hmm. thank you thank you so uh, so let's return a little bit to the book, and now the book is also divided into the different precepts. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, precepts and and, and the uh, the organization of uh, the the book and how you uh, comment on each one? Yeah,
1: yeah. So the book is made up of short chapters and with reflections, so to help us to. And it's also designed, the structure of the book is designed also to that anyone could open to any chapter that feels more resonant to them, or you can read it straight through. And so it's designed to be a good traveling companion. And the precepts are ethical considerations. And so I feel like we also live in a time right now where, you know, the generation Z folks talk about that 27% of them in a recent study talked about that they don't feel like they even have a good acquaintance. And so there's this incredible amount of social isolation. So that's mm-hmm. a big part of the maintaining of these precepts and how I find them helpful as guidelines are there ways that how we can be in relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we live in a pandemic of social isolation, what are the ways that we can actually tune into our own values, whatever those are, and actually live them? Well, and I feel that many times, you know, for many, many years, I lived not really attuned to my own values as well. And so how do we learn how to move into And understand what our values are and root them deeply in our body and experience, and then widen out
0: so that we can be more in relationship with others. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And um, in regards to what you're saying about like the lack of, I guess, intimacy or the lack of Queenie, um, the lack of, you know, you were talking a little bit about uh, the idea of the lone wolf in the book. And how uh you know a lot of us like to like to think of that as being like a a brand of honor, you know like oh you know i'm I'm not with the community or I'm just kind of like on my own, I'm just learning things own chart picking on my own and stuff like that so w- what was your experience of finding community and and how you moved away from kind of being on your own and and reading books on your own and and finding founding a community? Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, yeah.
1: Yeah, so two things that come to mind immediately are we have these really almost misperceptions of things in our culture. Uh, one of them is Atlas. So like if you go to Rockefeller Center here in Manhattan, across the river, you see this amazing image of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders alone. Yeah. And for us, many people think he's a hero. But actually, what we don't know is mythologically, he, that's his curse to hold the world on his shoulders. So he was being punished, and yet we see it as heroic. And so it's kind of skewed. Mm. And the other image is that I talk about in the book is about this lone wolf. And I really, for many years, identified as a lone wolf. And I thought, you with know, almost like a badge of honor, yeah, I'm a lone wolf. And, you know, and I was on this bus with this woman when I was around 17 or 18. And she turned to me and said, Oh, so are you a lone wolf? And I said, Yeah. You know, and she <laughs> said, Well, do you know what the thing is about lone wolves? And I said, No. And because actually I didn't know really what about wolves. Yeah. And it turns out that lone wolves are sick wolves yeah. and are dangerous. And because wolves are pack animals like humans are. And so it was a huge wake up call. And for me, it was at a time when I was kind of going into a lot of different communities. And she asked me which community I belonged to. And I was like, oh, I'd study with this person, that person, this person, that person. And I really was kind of everywhere and nowhere and was much more comfortable with that. So I thought. And what I also saw was that I was really comfortable not being in a place long enough to really look at my stuff. And my stuff at that time was really about, you know, feeling the fear of rejection was under a lot of my motivations for not really sticking around any one particular place. And, or my actual experiences, the difficulty of family of origin stuff, and that I being in a group was not a good idea. And, and it wasn't until I realized that I, with this generosity of this woman on the bus, where I realized that I really wanted to look at that stuff. I didn't want to be sick. And actually, underneath my, pride of being a woolen wolf I realized that much of it was fear and I wanted to look at my fear and as the wonderful um Sufi Muslim poet says uh, office and he says that fear is the cheapest room in the house huh. oh how I wish for you to have better living conditions and so it reminds me of like, all right, like when we stay in our fear, we never really allow ourselves to use our whole house or have our whole life. Ooh,
0: thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah, yeah so, um, hmm. yeah, it's interesting that when you think about how we feel like we are the Atlas metaphor or the Atlas symbol, it kind of makes you think about how we feel like on the one hand we feel like, uh, you know, all the problems of the world are on our shoulders and we're alone in this. On the other hand, we feel like we, we disempower ourselves. At the same time, we disempower ourselves that, oh, it's not about me. I can't do anything. I'm powerless. You know, it's like we hold both spaces and we're not able to find the the truth, which is that we influence others. And we, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like trying to find that middle ground between, on the one hand, it feels like I have to do everything. On the other hand, it feels like I can't do anything, you know? and And how do we pave a road where, we can be fully embodied and 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 act in the world in a way that'll influence and have an impact, but not feel so overburdened that we have to solve everything all at once. What was your take on that, or how do you how do you feel like we can solve that? For me, at least, that's the essential conundrum. You know, I feel like on the one hand, I feel like you know um, that there's there's so much to do, and yet at the same time, I just like that computer. It's like this computer that. Has many many tasks and then just shuts down because it can't, you know, handle it. You know, this is uh, uh, I think Tom Clancy was the one who brought it to my attention and uh, in a in a workshop in a in a book he wrote where he was like, um, you know, the supercomputer has like millions of tasks to do and then it just shuts down because it can't handle the the pressure or something. It just too much or whatever for it to do. You know, so what is your take on the ability of us? Uh, what is our true power? I guess is the the question. Yeah.
1: Well, a couple things. Um uh, one of them is a you know, it's a thing of our time, right? Where you know, many people I run into say like, "Oh, how you doing?" "Crazy busy, crazy busy." It's almost yeah. like a badge of honor to be crazy busy, whatever crazy <laughs> busy is. And it's almost becoming a thing instead of like, "Oh, how are you?" "Good, good, good, good." Everyone says, "Oh yeah, crazy busy, crazy busy." And so we kind of feed each other into going into a frenzy of some kind of overwhelm. And there are moments where if, if you looked at my calendar and you'd say like, what, how are you doing all those things? Well, um, I just do the next thing and I stay until I go. And so I stay completely where I am until I'm at the next thing and then it's time to go. But I think that we are so distracted that we're already planning what we're going to do eight steps ahead. As if that's a good idea, but it's not even possible. And so part of me thinks about, you know, mythologically the heroic, you know, which Atlas again is not a hero. And one of the reasons you know he's not a hero is that he's alone. And like the other cursed people in Greek mythology, uh, Sisyphus and Tantalus and um, Prometheus and all of these kind of famous figures, they're all alone. So part of the curse is to be alone. And the true heroes are full of stories of lots of people helping them. So to me, the kind of interesting space of when we're feeling overwhelmed is how do you do the heroic thing and ask for help and get lots of help? And so that's one of the things that I do and is incredibly important to me. I have really beautiful friends who are very nourishing to me and I feel like I can nourish and have a teacher and a partner and... A spiritual community, and I feel that really held in many, many ways by many people, and I feel like that's actually, and those are the relationships that are critical for overwhelm, because those are the people who you can say, "Oh, oh, <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself," and they can be with you in that space, and I think that. We do an enormous amount of work with uh, people at the end of their lives, and one of the messages consistently, consistently, is people wonder how they got swept away in their life and didn't nurture relationships. And usually the biggest regret is how they handled relationships, and mostly about how much fear
0: became a motivator as opposed to love. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. So um yeah, in regards to the um now, yeah, just to dovetail on that, and then uh so now you're talking a little bit about like the regrets we have and such and then how whether or not we able to connect and whether or not we we able to uh form those bonds, form, be flooded with love and stuff like that. Uh so this is something that um you know, meditation can help with just slowing down and making sure that we're connected, we're constantly connected to source. That, uh, and thinking about, you know, people think about the essential practice as being just, you know, sitting down on a cushion and, and, and watching our breath. But, you know, I, my understanding is that it's, it's much more than that. It's about, you know, in daily life, kind of slowing down the the real and making sure that we're not crowded by knee-jerk responses and such. And the meditative path is to, Kind of constantly watch the mind would you say and and how would you frame that like separating or, or maybe and how does how does meditation inform the meditative path would you say and, and how would you frame that how would you uh how would you put that yeah
1: well meditation is you know often misunderstood what it's about mm. and many people want to go to meditation so that they'll feel better or they'll feel peaceful or like they'll look like a you know, rainbow bright (laughs) cloud or something. And meditation actually is not designed to do that. And so actually, I don't know, 90% of people who stop meditating, stop meditating because they have difficult experiences. And so they feel like they're either doing it wrong or meditation's crappy. And the reality is meditation is challenging because it has the most... Basic instruction, the most simple instruction, which is just to feel what you feel while you're feeling it. And so seeing what arises. And for me, what happens over time is you just start to see that who's really thinking. And we realize that we have this brain, this five pound organ in our head. And we think that that's who we are when actually. The brain's job is to create about 100 thoughts per second. So it's just firing away all the time. That's what it does. Like the heart is constantly beating, the lungs are breathing, our kidneys are cleaning. All kinds of things are happening all at the same time. But somehow we kind of reduce our awareness of who we think we are to what secretions are coming out of our brain. And so, meditation, you know, in the Zen tradition, we just really focus on your hara, which is that place two inches below your belly button, to just, you know, drop into that space and keep returning there. So, the key is that we're going to constantly have thoughts. Many people also feel like, well, I can't meditate because I have too many thoughts. Well, you're not in charge of that. Ooh. You're totally not in charge. Yeah. And so the thoughts will always keep coming because that just means you have a brain. And if the brain is not having thoughts, you should call 911 <laughs> because actually in the hospital where you know where we work do a lot of work, you know, when there's no brain activity, that is not a good thing. <laughs> and we don't have to rush that. Yeah. And so learning just to like keep coming back to the breath when we feel like we're following a thought. Mm. And so you follow a thought and you go, "Oh," and come back to your breath. So you have a thought like, "Oh, I wish I had coffee before I got here." And then you come back to your breath. You say like, "Oh, I didn't send that text or whatever." And then you come back to your breath. And then You might even go further and say like, oh, that email, why did that person send me that email? And I'm composing like 20 responses to that email. And then we're off in this whole chain of thoughts,
2: Mm.
1: like going down a whole road. Mm. And then we can just notice and go, oh, right, and come back to our breath. Yeah. So meditation is this kind of, to me, like a true superpower to actually learn how to, have the confidence that you can return and not believe everything you're thinking and come back to the confidence of the moment. And is the easiest thing to say. And it takes everything to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think also we we were talking about as being practice, you know, and being practice that when we're sitting in meditation or zazen or uh whatever it is, whatever practice we have that Uh, brings us to our breath and and focuses on letting go of thoughts, that that is like a practice that then when we're in life, you know, it's so easy to follow anxious thoughts and they blind us to the situation at hand that we're not able to respond appropriately to the situation that we're in because we're too anxious about, you know, um, imagining what could be five steps from now that we're very anxious that, oh, you know, when our child runs off, We're like, he's going to get hit by a car and we're so anxious about that. It's not happened. It's, it's, the child has run off, but we're so worried about, you know, what's going to happen five, five minutes from now that, you know, then it becomes a very, you know, spiraling, you know, it becomes a very spiraling into discontentment and, and, and anger and, and, and frustration, you know. So I think that that's something that helps us practice meditation. So that then when we respond to situations, we respond fully and actively and, and able to have control of it would you say and how would you how would you think that um and is that is that something that, that's happened to you or has something i've been able to or, or how would you advise people to respond more authentically and be more present and all this kind of thing like how what is the what is the way in which we do that you know kind of, yeah yeah
1: you know i think one of the things that You know, even the title of the book is really about how we deal with that. It's like, how am I responding to my life right now in a wholehearted way? Yeah. How am I really, we already, again, we don't have to practice being reactive. Mm. No problem being reactive. And yet, how do we have a response with our whole heart? And... Heart in Japanese has a really interesting meaning because it includes heart and mind. Mm. So it's like your whole being. So wholehearted in Japanese really means like almost like whole, whole, Mm. right? So it's like your wholeness of your wholeness. So what would it be like to respond to your life with the wholeness of your wholeness? And it reminds me of a, story I tell in the book where this woman uh, who I know in the local coffee place by our center and this woman, another woman comes in and she has mobile ordered her coffee and is scrolling and swiping and scrolling and swiping on her phone and not looking at the barista, my friend. And mm. And then the coffee comes, she she takes it, she takes a sip without looking and says, this is not right. You know, what the hell are you doing? And make it again. And like, just like making this motion of just like so dismissive. And and Sarah, my friend who's the barista, she makes the coffee again and she's like, "Mm mm-hmm and she gives it to her yeah and she says i said you know how is that for you and that happens she's like well she doesn't know my life yeah and she's like and actually she's not even in her own life and so sarah and other people in my life remind me of that you can really be in your wholeness and you and that is a way of being in a non-reactive space. And to me, it's not even about becoming a Buddhist. It's about just really diving deep into your own being and Ooh. so that you're responding and being able to see more clearly where you actually are.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people like to, now in taste culture, we like to call out people for this kind of behavior. We like to say, oh, you know, this person is the the one to blame because they're always doing it's always about them, you know, it's always about the other person, you know, acting badly or, or doing something wrong. And it's always about calling out these people and blasting them and all this kind of thing. But where are we in that equation? I think that's the question that it seems to be provoking for me, uh, you know, kind of checking in with ourselves and, and making sure that we're okay and we're not just reacting. And it's not coming from a place of just throwing the ball to other people, but rather we're participating in this environment and how can we show a, show a real um, model for other people to follow rather than just calling attention to uh, merely calling attention to faults of others, you know? Yeah. And yeah. what do you think? About <laughs> yeah.
1: And there's, I write quite a bit about that and, yeah. uh, and think a lot about it. And uh, just to me is, you know, it's so easy to blame other people. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't mean that other people, again, are not responsible for their actions, but blame is such a funny thing. You know, it takes us out of it and also tends to uh, dehumanize another person and actually denies us from our own rich responsibility for how we participate. And you know, one of the more challenging relationships many of us have are with family members. And so one of the things I write about in the book is also (laughs) this relationship I have with my father and who I love so much. And we, you know, grew up going to this particular beach in Cape Cod and every summer, and we used to I still do. I really enjoy taking very long walks together and having long meandering conversations, and it's one of the things that we really enjoy together. And on one of these long walks, so you're like really far down the beach, and kind of basically, one of the reasons I love about it is like there's no escape at that moment, and that's tends to be when my dad used to bring up. Uh, asking advice about a very particular person who has harmed me and whom my dad cares for and and each time my dad had ever brought this person up, I feel so charged because I didn't feel protected by him from this person, and now here he is asking me for advice about how to care for this person and I found myself getting so enraged in the same way that I had probably been enraged with him for decades. So it's almost like we kept having the same fight again and again and again and again. again. It was like a weird, uh, like repeating nightmare. And I found myself getting so enraged and kind of like ready to go for his neck metaphorically. (laughs) And about to say something deeply unkind to him. And I was able to find my breath and just take a breath and feel the softness of my belly and just say, like, let's just pause here for a moment. And I realized in that moment what I had been doing, which was so crazy, and just constantly doing the same thing, and I kept waiting for him, what I realized in that moment, for him to change. Because I really wanted him to be the, a particular kind of daddy,
2: <laughs>
1: a particular kind of dad who would see something new and stop doing it or protect me now. Ooh. But it was really coming from that little guy in myself who didn't feel protected, but the reality is I'm not a little guy anymore. Mm -hmm. I have, as we all do, some little person in us or little people in us Mm -hmm. that respond to highly emotional things in really repetitious ways. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, I'm just not going to feed this anymore. It's kind of like feeding that demon, you know. Yeah. And I said, you know, Dad, I'm just not going to engage you in this conversation. And when you ask for advice, I'm just going to say no. And he said, okay. Yeah. And suddenly it felt like, you know, the spell was broken. And suddenly all I could feel for my father was love again. Mm. And it was just so interesting because I realized I had to grow up. And that growing up was actually this beautiful ground of confidence in myself as an adult person with Him. And for me, it's, I'm so grateful for my meditation practice because I feel like that's actually what has allowed me to have this balance, this stability to be able to pause in this like very heated moment and to stay in relationship with him and with myself at the same time.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I think that story also kind of tells us uh, a little bit of the lesson about like restraining ourselves and like trying to like, you know, it's so easy to indulge as your theme of this episode is about. So it's so easy to indulge in these emotions that come up. And trying to pull back and trying to say, okay, check in with ourselves and make sure that we're 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 being authentic and we're being real and we're being kind of you know showing the kind of restraint that we need to uh, allow another emotion to come through, which is you know kind of that loving emotion or that that feeling of a positive emotion doesn't doesn't always flood so easily as the negative emotions. The negative emotions tend to flow much more easily, as we've been saying and then just being able to hold it back so that then we can shut off that valve and and allow the other valve to to come through you know so that's something that i think that would be what I was hearing from what you were saying and even in the book um there's lots of like sub sub uh headings about you know do not you know do not taking toxins do not uh lie do not steal do not misuse sexuality all these precepts that we take in order to hold back you know to show restraint uh, and that's something that, you know, it's sometimes, you know, many people like to think that oh, I, I'm I'm a cool guy because I, I you know, I, I you know, I indulge, you know, and that, that, that uh, aspect of, of indulging as opposed to restraint is a theme of, of Buddhism that we want to, you know, and in general, I think in life, we, we, we reap the rewards of restraint, I guess, would you say, and, and how, in what way does restraint play into all this? Yeah. I think that
1: you know, there restraint has a really interesting teaching mm. insofar as especially when we're just functioning habitually. Mm. And I find that most of my initial responses to things are habitual. Yeah. And so I'm kind of gonna do the same thing. So if I'm gonna do something excessively It'll be the same way that I normally do something. And so learning how to pause and just reflect for a moment. Like, do I really need to do this? Mm. You know, I talk about in the book about like my love of iPhones. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, like that's always been something really interesting for me. And so... I watch the little video. I go to the store, I look at I, it. you know, I do this whole yeah. thing, but I refrain from getting it yeah and but it's kind of like experimenting with ourselves about what is this compulsion, mm. and we all have different compulsions in different ways, and it could be for cookies, it could be for you know drugs and alcohol, it could be sex, it could be a lot of different things, or iPhones or you know it doesn't actually in some ways fundamentally matter, but what matters is how do you pause and how do you work with your own wholeheartedness and To me, if we just just follow compulsion, there's not much room for wholeheartedness, and at the same time, I also want to put in you know, a good word for exuberance and joy because yeah. it's not about we should just be like in the serious people's collective.
0: Oh yeah. That's point.
1: And we're like just don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, you know. And I think that in my understanding, that's not exactly a joyful life either. Mm. And so how do we have a life of love and intimacy, which means Really actively working with things, and so sometimes that's refraining from, and sometimes it's not. And so learning how to have balance, and relationality, and joy.
0: Yeah, maybe at first is maybe in the beginning it's like a question of uh, checking in, and slowing down. But then ultimately, it's you know when we when we find that groove, perhaps uh, it's question of putting the gas on that those those specific. Uh, joyful when we rejoice for others when we find love for others then you know knowing when to hit the gas on those emotions and those feelings that then we can flood our our perhaps our system with these these positive feedback would you say and and how that kind of then then becomes habitual for us to to feel joy and happiness in regards to loving feelings you know i think um
1: Sometimes it's love and joyful feelings, and sometimes it's awkward and
0: huh.
1: uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I think sometimes actually learning how to refrain, from for example, from like, I'm scared about something. Yeah. Or like, oh, I don't really want to have this conversation <laughs> because it's yeah. so uncomfortable and awkward. And yet. Learning how to refrain from actually following that fear of that. Yeah. And so sometimes it's also about going into the awkwardness and discomfort and just be like, wow, this is awkward and uncomfortable. And so it goes. And so I think sometimes I think we just have to be careful about kind of pleasure seeking because I think that sometimes refraining from can be going towards joy. And I think sometimes refraining from go brings us into awkwardness and discomfort. And so I think it's more about what's authentic and what's needed in the moment.
0: Yeah. So it always changes and always, it's always just in in, independence of or independence of Mm. what's needed in that moment. I see what you're saying. It's like the giving tree. Like
1: like when it chopped its branches down, like that probably wasn't fun.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And yet, so it goes. Thank you. So, I just want to give a quick, few quick shout outs. We'll we'll still be going a little bit longer, but, um, Ready for Brooklyn is a, this is where you're listening to Radio for Brooklyn, uh, the Truth to Power Show. Um, Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So, to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one time donation, a monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. You can also sponsor this particular show by going to radioforkland.org slash truth to power. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please uh, support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to full cent to the law. You can also donate to Radio Brooklyn by shopping through Amazon Smile, Amazon's charity initiative where you can shop and support nonprofit of your choice at the same time. It'll cost you nothing. Just go to radioforkland.org slash smile and uh, sign in and have RP as your donee. And start shopping. Um, after more than a year of dreaming, researching, and experimenting, late night conference calls, and early Saturday morning meetings, the Me team is happy to proud present you the Me bottle. This double insulated, reusable stainless steel bottle disinfects water in 60 second cycles. Utilizing UVC LED technology is 99.99 effective against E. coli. A single charge via micro-USB lasts up to 30 days, and the bright LED display lets you know when water is ready to drink. Join us in bringing clean water to all. Raise your bottle and drink to you and me. Find it more on mebottle.com. Um, also, if you're listening uh, on the computer, you can free yourself up by going to respective Play stores, iPhone or Android. Download the app for Radio Free Brooklyn. It's a free app, so you can listen to us and our ongoing programming. Uh, on the app on Ready for Brooklyn on the iPhone and Android. Uh, also, if you're, um, interested in finding out about live events and, uh, and various, uh, upcoming RFB events, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, uh, at readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Thank you. So, uh, I know you'd requested or you, we were discussing about an out song. Um, so before we play that, you can set it up a little bit. Um, the Heart Sutra. I have various mixes of uh, Kanho uh, Yakushiji, uh, his Heart Sutra. I guess I'll play the um, the long mix uh, and get a sense of that. But tell us a little bit about the Heart Sutra and, and what what is that uh, what is that about? Yeah.
1: Well, it's just beautiful. It's one of the chants that is recited pretty much every day in at least most Zen temples around the world. And it's a combination of, it starts with the bodhisattva the awakening quality that we all have of compassion. And that compassion comes from, the text really talks about that we can't get too stuck in our small lives. And we have to also understand that there's vast oneness at the same time. So we have to hear the cries of the world and realize that we're absolutely one, so that there's no difference. So it's that integration of the absolute and the relative, and in some ways, that's how we go over to free ourselves from suffering.
0: Thank you, thank you. So um, we'll listen a little bit to that, and people can tune in every Monday at eight a.m. Uh, to shoot the to power show. One part of the premise of the show was to, you know, how we find our personal truths. And how we allow that to empower ourselves in our communities. Uh, you know, and, and I think that, uh, truth is something that's something that's sometimes elusive, but sometimes we're always connected to it. And it's something that we need to translate into, uh, how we can, uh, amplify our, ourselves in our communities. So that then we can really allow that holy truth to come through and, and shine through. So, um, thank you. And then this is about, I think I'll play the, uh, uh, and then people can listen to the archives. We're going to be heading our 100th episode now. Uh, m- November 18th will be our 100th episode now. Uh, because originally it was 1111, 11, but then, uh, I'll be sk- skipping over next week's episode. So next week will be a rebroadcast, but, uh, 1111 11 will return and then 1118 will be our 100th episode. So we'll play the, uh, about five minutes to the heart sutra. Uh, so please enjoy. Thank you. We just, uh... ho oh. ho ho
2: 無償税 Sattae 소야 so